So good to see each one of you here today. We get to open up the book of Acts. We're going to continue this, well, the exciting story in the book of Acts. Let's quickly look at the first 12 chapters of Acts. Way back in the very beginning, there were 120 followers. They were told to wait for the Spirit. And they did. And when the Spirit came, it came powerfully and notably. And they were able to be witnesses, first of all in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria. Oh, it was pretty exciting. The birth of the church had started. And along with that came growth and persecution and expansion. Last week, if you're with us, we focused on Acts chapter 12. It was a hard chapter because one of the apostles, James, was killed. But one of his cohorts, one of his friends, Peter, was miraculously rescued from prison. We learned that God is sovereign. We learned that God gives peace in the midst of storms. We learned that prayer was critical for the church and that telling your salvation story is something God gives each one of us the privilege to do. Some of you did read all the way to the end of that chapter. We did not cover it. But if you see the last few verses in Acts chapter 12, you'll see that Herod literally dies. God judges Herod. But there's a verse, verse 24, where Dr. Luke tells us that the word of God powerfully advanced in spite of the persecution and that lives were transformed. Now we get to go into chapter 13. And chapter 13 ushers us into part two of Acts. In the first part of Acts, the first 13 years or so of the birth of the church, the Jerusalem church's ministry focused primarily on the Jewish world. Yes, there was evangelism, and it happened in Samaria and Caesarea and Syrian Antioch, but all these conversions or converts still had deep Jewish ties. The gospel was now going to advance into all the world through the Apostle Paul. Paul's first missionary journey began a radically new policy for proclaiming the gospel and to make converts. Paul would do something very different. He would contact the Gentiles in their world and not focus on the lost who were sympathetic or knowledgeable about Judaism. Gentiles who had no connection to Hebrew faith would now trust Jesus, the Jews' Messiah. So let's pray. Let's pray before we open up Acts chapter 13. Father, we bow before you recognizing you are God. You are God. 
Everything that happens in our world, you let happen. We don't understand your timing or your ways, but we trust you. God, you've given us your word, your life-transforming word. We pray, Father, that you'd speak to us, you'd inspire us, you'd convict us. We ask you, God, to do a work today in each one of us. Don't let us leave, Father, just the same people. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13. But realistically, if you have your Bibles, just go back one verse to Acts chapter 12, verse 25. And the words are up on the screen if you'd like. But again, we wish the Bible was written just perfectly chronologically. But verse 25 would literally come after Acts 11.30. As I mentioned last week, Acts 12 comes after Acts 11.18. And so if you just want to put this into context or, or understand it, Paul and Barnabas... We're in the church of Antioch. We find this in Acts chapter 11. And they're teaching and they're training and they're equipping. And these were the Christians that noticed that, well, the people in Jerusalem were hurting. So they had an offering. They sent it to the church in Jerusalem with Barnabas and Paul. That's where we left chapter 11. Now we pick up in verse 25, chapter 25, or chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. Their mission again was to bring the funds that were collected in Antioch to Jerusalem to help those, those folks in need. Now they've just returned. You also remember there was a guy in the Jerusalem church. It was actually the house that Peter went to after his rescue. It was John Mark's uh, mother's house. Well, John Mark was mesmerized with these two. And so he decided to go back with them. Shall we say do an internship? Chapter 13, verse 1. Among the prophets and the teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manon, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for a special work, to which I've called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. In just this introduction, Paul and Saul complete their mission and return with John Mark to Antioch. There are five prophets and teachers at the Antioch church that Dr. Luke mentions. Now, usually in the Greek context, 
lists are given in order of significance. So at least the Dr. Luke, as he was looking at it, Barnabas was the most important. And out of these five men, Paul was, or Saul was the lowest on the totem pole. These men were leaders. I sense they're mentioned because they were the movers and the shakers in the church. So we know, just in these first few verses, that Antioch had at least five men who proclaimed God's word. It was their ministry that was important to build up the church with the word of God. So we have Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manon and Saul. They were the leaders leading the flock in Antioch. While these guys were worshiping and fasting, the Spirit moved. Somehow it was communicated to them, and we're going to go into a little deeper here in a moment, But the message they got was very clear. Appoint and affirm Barnabas and Saul. I have a very special work for them. Now, if you look back, and we know a little bit of history here, but this was the dream team, folks. All right. I mean, Saul, who eventually became Paul, wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament. He was taught by God himself for years and years. He understood theology. He understood who God was. He was an amazing teacher. And Barnabas, all we know about him is all he did was go around pumping people's tires. And in the church and in ministry, what a guy to have around. So the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want you to take this amazing teacher and I want you to take a guy who goes around making sure that people are encouraged. And I want you to send them away. Well, the scriptures tell us they fasted and prayed more, probably because in their own opinion, they're going, are you serious? Couldn't we send, you know, Joe and Billy? They're way down on the food chain. They're not as important. You know, our church is really moving right now. Why would we send these guys? But they fasted and prayed more. They got a sense that this was right. These were the marching orders. And they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The word sent here in the original language carries the meaning of releasing them from their duties at Antioch. They were teachers. They were leaders. But really, the Holy Spirit was saying this, I've got a brand new assignment. Bless them. Send them out. The laying on of hands simply signified identification or confirmation or unity in this upcoming mission. Luke doesn't give much detail here. Luke does not tell us how long they prayed and fasted. Well, for 14 days, they didn't eat a thing, and they, no, just a simple statement. Luke does not tell us how the Spirit moved, how the Spirit actually revealed God's plan to them. And the Spirit, uh, and 
and Luke does not tell us what the actual special assignment is, although we'll find that out in just a moment. Let's read the remaining, well, uh, from Acts chapter 13, verse 4 through verse 12. And I'm going to have it read for us. Let's do that. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There, in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud and enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. The Spirit, through the church, through these church leaders, sends Barnabas and Saul and a helper named John Mark. They left from the port of Seleucia to Salamis in Cyprus. Once in Salamis, they headed to the synagogue to preach the word. Now, most of these towns don't seem very important to you, but on the island of Cyprus... The two important towns were Salamis and Pappas. So they started there. After a bit, the scriptures just tell us, now I'll have more information, they traveled from town to town, ending up in Pappas. Now Pappas was the Roman provincial capital, the seat of the governor. And in our scripture, we're introduced to two more players. The first player is the governor, Sergius Paulus. He's, or we are told, that he's an intelligent man who wanted to hear God's word. We also are introduced to a sorcerer named Bar-Jesus. He had a nickname, Elymas. Now, His job, according to what the Bible just said, is that he was trying to hinder Sergius Paulus from hearing God's word and believing. Saul, 
And oh my, if you underline your Bible, this was so exciting to me. I am so sick of calling Saul, Paul, and Paul, Saul. From this time on, it's Paul. So Saul, now Paul, yes, filled with the Spirit, confronted Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus miraculously was struck blind. Now, what's very interesting, at the end of this section, we see that the governor was not moved by the miracle, but was moved by the teaching. That might have been pretty scary. One of the guys that you had a relationship with in your court And Paul actually strikes him blind, and he becomes blind. You would think he'd be enamored with that. But the scriptures say he wasn't enamored with the miracle. He was enamored with the truth about Jesus. And he became a believer. The conversion of Sergius Paulus was a turning point in Paul's whole ministry. It actually was the first recorded Gentile conversion that had no Jewish ties. So here in the very first part, we don't know how long he stayed on the island of Cyprus, but he starts in one port, goes through all the different cities, ends up in the Roman provincial capital, and in all this time, only one person comes to faith, at least that we know about. God is teaching us. He's inspiring us. And as I spend time in these verses, I got so excited. You see, in fact, I saw seven things that jumped out, seven things that inspired me, seven things that convicted me. But before I go there, I just want to say one thing. I was a little intimidated. In fact, I wrestled with the Lord a little bit. And I I said, Lord, do I really need to go over all seven of these? Could I just pick and choose? Father, is there a different way I could go. Now again, I don't know where you're at right now. But so many times as I chat, as I interact with people, and I asked what God is teaching you, and how God's word is transforming your lives, and how different that when you leave this building, Many of you look at me oddly. Say, well, it was a nice story. You know what? I'll have to think about it. But realistically, I don't know if anything came to mind as these verses were being read today. But there are so many things that will encourage your heart and will change the inside of you if you allow the Holy Spirit today to speak to you. 
So I'm going to share seven things that jumped out. Seven things that I think will change your lives today as you just kind of wrestle with them and allow the Holy Spirit to teach and convict and change. The first thing is this. God speaks, he directs while we are engaged in the disciplines. What does that mean? Well, disciplines, and there's quite a few different spiritual disciplines, they open the door for intimacy with God. God is not concerned about all the things you do or don't do. God wants a relationship with each one of us. And he wants to become more and more intimate with each of us. Spiritual disciplines help us develop intimacy. It's not about performance. It's about a relationship. And in this text, there's a few spiritual disciplines mentioned. The first one was worship. Worship is adoring God. But worship always erupts as your intimacy grows. You fall more in love with God. You're praising God more. You're thanking God more. You're not so concerned about circumstances. You're trusting Him when things don't look exactly right. You're singing. You're dancing. You're thanking God. God for who he is, not for what he does for you. You, God, are God. Secondly, fasting. Fasting doesn't always go well when you teach about it. But the Bible frequently connects fasting with times of vigilant, passionate prayer. You see, fasting believers become so concerned with spiritual issues, they lose the desire to eat. (laughs) Whoa. Maybe not just the desire to eat, but to do normal life's activities. So, So people set aside food or anything like that to concentrate on intense intercession. Is he fasting is done often so that you can pour your heart out to God about sin in your life, sin that may have a stranglehold on you, sin that may be weighing you down, sin that you just don't feel like you'll be able to get victory over. Maybe you pour your heart out to God in grief or you're asking him for guidance, giving you some specifics. Maybe you're asking God for wisdom or power. But oftentimes, going without food for a time will give you the opportunity to spend more time with God, especially praying to Him. You see, the Scriptures nowhere commands believers to fast. But if you read through the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Luke, you'll find out that Jesus assumed his followers would just do so. The next discipline that's been mentioned is prayer. And we spent so much time in prayer last week just focusing on it. But prayer is communication with God. And again, prayer just naturally happens or increases 
or the intensity increases as your intimacy increases. As you spend more time with God, as you love God, you want to listen to Him. You want to hear Him. And you want to talk back to Him. I love how Paul talked about the Macedonian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says something like this. And they were talking about generosity at that time. But Paul said, I love the Macedonians. They first gave themselves to God. And after that, they gave or served the church. One of the things that is so clear all the way through the scriptures is, is that we can do a lot of things for God. Or believers can fall in love with God and see it as a privilege to serve God. My question to you is, and there's so many other disciplines, there's memorizing, there's study of God's word, there's um, silence and solitude, all these things that, again, done by themselves doesn't make you more holy but opens up your hearts in order for you to receive and to hear from God in a very special way. My question is, how engaged are you in disciplines? I could say the same about marriage because some of you are married and some of you have spouses and some of you, well, hey, got married. What else you got to do? My guess is, is that if you want to grow in intimacy, you're going to spend time with that special person. You're going to listen. You're going to communicate. You're going to be creative. And you're going to grow in that relationship. It's the same way with God. Is that he desires deeply to be intimate. And we have opportunities every day to spend time with God in a disciplined way so that we might be able to grow in that relationship. Second thing, God calls all people to full-time ministry. Now sometimes, and maybe you've even been in churches that put pastors or missionaries or those folks who are in full-time ministry up on a pedestal. Actually, once every one of us come to faith, we're part of God's family, and we are called to serve others. But the Spirit sovereignly calls some to vocational ministry or missionary service. What I want to point out to you here in this text is that the church did not choose. They did not send out an email. They did not ask for volunteers who would like to be the first missionaries. We're sending you in that direction. Hey, do I see a hand? No. God chose. Nor do I sense that Saul or Barnabas actually volunteered. I think they were part of this core. I think they were praying. They were worshiping. They were listening to the Spirit. And they all came to a conclusion that Paul and Barnabas ought to be our first missionaries. You see, the leadership that walks with God recognized the anointing. 
They didn't produce it. Thirdly, the Antioch church exercised their God-given gifts. Now, now, let me go a little bit deeper here if I could. God gives every church, well, he is wise and gives every church the perfect amount of people and the gifts that are needed. God gives gifts in order for the believers in the church to strengthen the church or to strengthen the body. God opens ministry doors to those who are already actively serving him. He is not likely to take idle Christians down from the shelf, dust them off, and entrust them with important work. Now, we know that Saul and Barnabas were deeply involved in ministering when their call the vocational uh, missionary service came. God chose experienced, proven men for this important mission. God guides folks using their gifts while engaging in the disciplines. Isn't this really rather exciting? There were no such thing as missionaries before. They had only been, I mean, the church had only been around 12, 13, 14, 15 years. They'd gone on some evangelistic kind of, you know, crusades. But here they are, five guys, praying, fasting, worshiping. And God says, hey, new idea. Send Paul and Barnabas. And let them be our first missionaries. We already know Barnabas is an encourager. You go on this mission trip and you're going to see you're going to need to be encouraged. We already know Paul's teaching abilities. He's been teaching for the last year in Antioch here. We know that. They've been serving. They've been listening. They've been working. They did the little things well. I need to promote them. I need to send them on a trip. Oh, so many times. Well, we look at certain tasks that are available to us. And sometimes we want the higher visibility ministries. Some of us, no, no, let's just stay behind. But you know, one of the beauties of ministry is that we all start off serving while others in places maybe that isn't so visible. And we have opportunities to be able to, well, maybe teach third and fourth graders. Maybe be a wanna leader in Sparks and be able to understand what it means to shepherd children and to be able to see their response and for you to be able to develop your teaching gifts or your shepherding gifts. And people will notice that. And as you get older, maybe you get more responsibility or folks will encourage you, hey, how about some further training? How about if you think about this? 
And God continually uses people, in my opinion, of those who are serving. You know, the truth is, if you don't want to do anything in a church, don't do anything. All right, don't serve. Don't get involved. Your life will be very, very comfortable. You can come out on a Sunday, you can hear a message, you can shake lots of people's hands, and you can leave exactly the same kind of person. One of the challenges is, is that as God gives you gifts, you get to use them, and you never, ever, ever, ever know what tomorrow holds, but it is an adventure. Are you open, even today, to a new challenge, to God's leading of him actually giving you a new assignment because you've done really well with the assignment you're at right now? The next thing I notice is that Antioch had godly leaders, ones who respond to the Spirit. You see, effective small, uh, excuse me, effective strong churches inevitably have godly leaders. And the church at Antioch was no exception. All the way through the scriptures, God has put a premium on spiritual leadership. And the responsibility of spiritual shepherds is to feed and to care for the flock. The leaders at Antioch understood this spiritual mandate clearly. They patterned themselves after the apostles, which we talked about a long time ago in Acts chapter 6, where these leaders devoted themselves to prayer and to teaching God's word. These should be forever priorities of your leaders. But, Of all the factors that made the Antioch church strong, the most significant was its submission to the Holy Spirit from the top down. They were utterly dependent on the Spirit who energized every facet of the ministry. They knew their intimacy with God was critical because they needed to stay connected to God Through that Holy Spirit, it would be teaching and convicting. They needed the Spirit's wisdom. They needed the direction. And they listened and were submissive to the Spirit, especially in my opinion of being to take or taking both Paul and Barnabas, two key people, and sending them off. And it had to take faith. That had to come from listening to the Spirit. And I asked, what marks a Spirit-filled church? Well, a Spirit-filled church may be defined as simply one whose leaders and members walk by the Spirit and bear Spirit fruit. There's love, and there's joy, and there's peace, and there's patience. In other words, in a church that is spirit-filled, well, you care about others. You love God and you love others well. 
when there's conflict, you go to the person. There's forgiveness extended. When there's disharmony, you talk about it. You work through the issues. It is family. A spirit-filled church is one where if someone were to walk in from the outside, it would be alluring. It would be unbelievably attractive. I just want to be part of it. Look how those people care for one another. Look how those people forgive. Look how those people serve one another. Yes, I want that. I want to be part of that family. A spirit-filled church is deeply committed to the obedience of the inspired word of God. Obedience keeps disciples connected to the vine. And those who are connected to the vine bear much fruit. The mark of a healthy church, literally, is that it bears much fruit. That people are reflecting God well in the marketplace, in the neighborhood, in their own homes. These are people who are walking with God. The next thing I'd like to hit is The enemy consistently opposes God, his word, and his team. You know, the first major outreach of the gospel from Antioch soon encountered the false prophet Bar-Jesus. Folks, we are in a spiritual war. The enemy does not want the gospel to go forward. The enemy does not want the church of Christ to make a difference in a neighborhood. The enemy does not want the church to send out missionaries. You see, leading someone to Christ is not merely an academic exercise, nor it's a matter of getting the right sales pitch, nor it's a matter of being able to know the Scripture so well you can argue it with anyone. It involves an all-out war against the forces of hell. Saul and Barnabas battled Bar-Jesus for the soul of Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus was open. Sergius Paulus wanted to hear. And we have Bar-Jesus over here saying, no, 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 don't believe that stuff. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, confronted Bar-Jesus. You know, when God's people seek to advance his purposes, satanic opposition is going to be unavoidable. I guarantee it. Whether it's been on mission trips, whether it's a church that's moving forward, whether it's missionaries, when they are making progress, when the kingdom is advancing, we know the enemy's going to show up. There's no doubt about it. You know, it's an interesting parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13. He was talking about the kingdom and used quite a few different stories. But he said this, and and many of you recall this story. He said, hey, there was a field. And the farmer went out and sowed his seeds. But the enemy came. Oh, yeah. And he sowed weeds among all the good seed. And so as the weeds and the good seeds started to grow. The workers got a little upset. 
<laughs> they went to the owner. And he said, hey, I just want you to know, hey, our field's full of weeds and wheat. Okay? What should we do? And the owner said this, oh, the enemy did this. The enemy sowed weeds in there. In fact, the enemy probably wants us right now to be focusing on the weeds. Let's go try to get the... No. Let the weeds grow. Don't worry about the weeds. Let the weeds grow with the wheat. And then when we harvest, I will judge it. I will take care of it. I will take all those weeds, and I'll take them and burn them. And we'll keep the wheat. You know, I think sometimes we are overly concerned with the weeds. The enemies work. We want to make sure that, you know, the truth wins. I think God's given each one of us a privilege and a mission. And we just need to own that the weeds are going to grow. They are. And God's going to take care of them. Now, most of the time, we have a tendency thinking that it's our job to destroy and pick the weeds. Well, if I understand 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, I think that we have an opportunity to witness to the weeds. We have an opportunity to serve the weeds with grace and love and understanding. And with respect. You see, God is the ultimate judge. And I think there's times you need to stand up to weeds, believe me. But realistically, our job is to influence weeds. It is. And to be able to share with them God's hope and to draw them to a loving and a beautiful and a gracious Savior. My question to you is, knowing that the enemy consistently opposes God, his word, and his team, what should be our response to no opposition? In other words, maybe you're just sailing along. Would that mean actually that the enemy isn't too concerned about you? Or if you are, if you're under attack, maybe God wants us to trust him in a new and a fresh way. The next one's really short, but I thought I'd mention it. We're going to talk a little bit more about it next week. But there are casualties in ministry. We didn't read in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. But there we find out that John Mark literally leaves the missionary team. Things got too hard. Things got too tough. He started off, I think, really hoping. Uh, he saw glamour. He saw the response. But it didn't take long for John Mark to go back to Jerusalem, go back home. He basically failed in Paul's eyes. But it's really cool is that no matter how hard any of us fail, God continually gives us grace. John Mark was the young man who eventually wrote the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of cool. The last thing I think that I got out of this text is that God has given us an example on how to reach the world. It really has. 
It was from a dynamic, doctrinally sound, growing, spirit-filled church at Antioch that the flag of world missions was unfurled. I'm pretty sure when this was brought to the congregation, not everybody agreed. That's something new. Why should we do that? This is crazy. Why would we send our best out? Why would we support them? Why? Well, because... God moved the leaders and God used the leaders to move the church. At the right time, God chose right people and the church sent them on God's mission. You know, we often don't know the specifics of the call. We don't. We don't have any of that direction here, but they started off on the island of Cyprus Interesting, that was Barnabas's home. Maybe they even just thought, hey, we're starting off. We're not exactly sure what we're supposed to do other than we're supposed to teach others about the good news. Let's start in Cyprus. You, you must know the island well. Let's, let's go there. So they started in Cyprus. You know, I got to tell you a story. It, it, it was amazing. One of my friends, Chris, is a a leader in the Athletes in Action ministry at Ohio State, or at, yeah, Ohio State University. And uh, at Ohio State, um, they were going to go on a mission trip to Puerto Rico. And this is the story of Liz. Liz was a Spanish major. And Liz was also a goalie on the field hockey team at Ohio State. And realistically, Chris had a relationship with Liz. She was a newer Christian. And what would happen is he said, hey, would you like to go to Puerto Rico with us? You're a a Spanish major. We're having an outreach there. How about if you come? She thought about it for a little, prayed about it, says, yeah, I'm in. Well, this changed her life, literally. She came back on fire, and she was able to share good news, not only on the field hockey team, but literally all over Ohio State. When she was nearing graduation, Chris approached her again and said, hey, you're going to graduate. Why don't you go down to Puerto Rico for a couple years? You can be an intern down there. You can help us with our ministry in Puerto Rico. And she says, no, I can't. I've already signed some papers. I'm going to Spain to play field hockey professionally. Chris said, okay. She went to Spain. She went to a Christian church. She met another Athletes in Action um, staff person. That staff person discipled her for the next two years. At the end of that two years, the team there, they saw her hunger for God. She saw how, they saw how effective she was. She saw her passion in sharing Jesus. She said, would you stay? Would you stay and be on the Athletes in Action missionary team right here in Spain? She said, yes, I would. You know, at the end of the letter, it says, you know, sending an Ohio State athlete to Spain by way of Puerto Rico was not our Puerto Rico strategic plan. But it was God's plan. It was God's plan. How cool. She took a little baby step. I'm going to go on a mission trip. She saw God work. 
she came back and was given more responsibility. She had an opportunity to end up in Spain and eventually be a missionary for AIA in Spain. I love it. It wasn't the plan when she first graduated, but little bit by little bit by little bit. That's what God does. Not only in churches, but in individuals. You know, we have the privilege of partnering with missionaries all over our world. On our prayer list, we have all of them listed. Folks working in all different areas. And if you talk to them, you would hear how God used them early in their ministries, teaching Sunday school, being Awana leaders, discipling others, and says, you know what? I need somebody over there. Would you be willing to go? And yes, let's support them. Let's partner with them. I mean, honestly, don't you get inspired when you hear stories like this? And the truth is, it could happen right here. I can tell you person after person at age 50, at age 53, at age 57, said, you know what? God's called me somewhere else to do something else. (laughs) What an adventure. You know, I'm not saying where you're at is wrong. I'm not. But I am saying this, is that God has a plan, not only for this church, but for you and for me. Who knows what it's going to look like in a week or a month. Wow. You know, the task is unfinished. God just wants people that listen to his spirit, that respond to his spirit. Others will recognize it. Others will affirm you, other believers. They'll say, yeah, you've got to go do that. That is awesome. And you know what? I'm going to support you. Heard from another missionary seeking support this week. Excited to hear this story. Connected them with Margie. And we may have another opportunity to be able to partner with another young couple in another part of the world. How cool is that? You know, may God move us. May God work in every one of us. May God use the Spirit in a new, in a fresh way, even now. Let's pray. Father, the task is unfinished. And sharing good news and making disciples is something you've asked us to do. Oh God, would each one of us grow in relationship with you? Would we become so intimate with you? Would you be able to prompt us? Maybe we're going to go play field hockey in Spain. How crazy is that, God? How crazy. That, that doesn't make any sense. But you used it. And you gave a platform. God, you've gifted us. Maybe it's even taking some, even right here at Crosspoint, some of the best encouragers, some of the best teachers, and be able to send them into the world somewhere to do your work. Oh God, use us, change us,
Don't let us be comfortable, dear God. Our time is short, all of it. May we be inspired to hear you and just walk with you. And you're going to direct and change the world. In Jesus' name.